We're going to look at Genesis 4, verses 1 through 6. And while you're turning there, Genesis 4, 1 through 6, I'll give you a quick update on RUF in Conway, Hendricks College. Um, Hendricks, unlike a lot of places, does not have any summer classes uh, because Arkansas Governor's School is there during the summers. Um, and so normally there are not too many Hendricks students around in the summers, but the last couple of years there have been more um, and uh, plenty of football players. And so uh, a couple of my, my friends from Hendricks are here today, Stefan and Sandy. They're both uh, Arkansas natives and uh, on the football team at Hendricks. Um, so you can say hi to them, shake their hands, but just be forewarned, they're strong young men, and so just careful with your hands around them. Uh, but things are going well in, in uh, Conway with RUF. We've been able to have a couple of summer RUFs, Bible studies, um, and students are going to be back here in probably about a month before we know it. So looking forward to that. So Genesis 4, 1 through 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering for uh, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? We're actually going to go to verse 16, not verse 6, sorry. All the way through 16. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is uh, hammer and fire and uh, that it penetrates our hearts uh, when you work in it through your spirit. And we pray that that would be so this morning and that you would do all this uh, to the glory of your name and your son, Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, like many of you, uh, I grew up um, 
without as many entertainment options as uh, young people today. And so I actually read these things called books uh, when I was growing up. And specifically, I read uh, probably through a couple times the Hardy Boys series, the Nancy Drew series, uh, which are classics. But so this sort of penchant for uh, mystery type stuff as a young man means that as an adult, I'm kind of interested in uh, true crime stuff, uh, books, documentaries, things like that. And uh, all true crime, uh, if you're not familiar with it, spend some time wrestling with the question of what is it in the human heart that leads to this propensity for violence? As Christians, of course, uh, we think that we know exactly what that is, that it is sin, which the Bible calls lawlessness. And so lawlessness towards God uh, plays itself out in lawlessness towards other people, sometimes in the defacing, in the snuffing out of the image of God uh, in someone else. The Genesis story of all violence is in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, which means beginnings, of course. So uh, it's the story of Cain and Abel that we just read, a story that many of you know. In fact, it's probably one of the more widely known uh, stories from the Bible, I would imagine. So it's worth slowing down and looking at. It's worth noting that the first human father and the first mother, Adam and Eve, knew the pain of losing a child. And that the first natural-born man in all of the world would turn out to be a murderer. Our hope, of course, is that by looking at hard stories like this, it's not for us to, to sort of gawk at and sort of rubberneck, um, but it's that we would learn something about ourselves and about our own hearts, how humans work and how we work, and what some of the things might be that are lurking in us. So let's look a little more carefully at the story. It says, Adam knew Eve. So the union that God created, bone of bones, flesh of flesh, bears fruit. Eve is as excited as any new mother. And so she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And she names him Cain uh, from the Hebrew forgotten. And so there may be a little hint of pride here about what she has done in this little burst of joy. But uh, rightly, she connects this son to uh, God's faithfulness. And she's thankful. And then she has another son, Abel, who she names, uh, uh, Abel means fleeting or vapor, which is a foreshadowing probably of what is to come. Now think for a moment about what these boys are born into and how different it is than what Adam and Eve saw when they opened their eyes. The Shorter Catechism says that Adam and Eve were created male and female after God's own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. So that is a pretty good start to life, right? Um, I sometimes think about what I could have been born into. Uh, my dad farmed, but he sold the farm when I was about two before I uh, have any memories. And so I did not grow up. I've barely ever been on a farm in my life. I've never uh, bush hogged a field. Uh, I've never fed the hogs or milked the cows or any of those things. Those things are lost on me. And so think about what was lost to Cain and Abel as a result 
of the fall. Gone is the perfect garden that God had given to Adam and Eve and that they tended in peace and security. A garden that would have been passed on to Cain and Abel. Gone is the fruit of that garden. Every tree except one yielding its good food with no lack. Gone is the intimate communion with God, the God who created us, the God who created them and walked with them in the cool of the day. It could have all been theirs, right? But it wasn't. Because again, this is also from Westminster, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of sin uh, of Satan sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of body and soul. What does that mean? It means that Cain and Abel were born into sin and grew up outside the garden, outside of the care and safety and security that had been their parents before the fall. In other words, Cain and Abel are born into a world of danger, of physical danger, emotional, spiritual danger because of sin. And more than that, of course, we live in that world still. So it's dangerous out there, right? Now some time goes by. Um, these boys grew up and they took different occupations. Abel, the sheep, Cain, the worker of the ground. I'm speculating a little bit here, but that's probably uh, dovetails pretty nicely for a family, right? So Cain and Abel are, are working to support themselves and their, their mother and father uh, in their respective trades. Verse 3, in the course of time... Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Cain brings, it says, the fruit of the ground. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So here the tension begins. It says the Lord had regard or respect for Abel and his offering, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard in other words, one of these brothers has pleased God and one of them has not. It's true, of course, that Abel's offering was better, but God's real displeasure is in the, the lack of heart behind Cain's offering. And we know that uh, because Hebrews 11 mentions Abel as operating by faith. And Jesus himself calls him righteous Abel in the book of Matthew. So the offerings themselves were really just an illustration of the inner truth. And the inner truth was that Cain did not love God. So God rejected his offering. And Cain was very angry. It says, literally, uh, he grew hot with anger and his face fell. He was downcast. So think about that for a second. Who is Cain angry with? We'll come back to that. And then follows verse 6, I think a really remarkable section where God is gracious enough to, uh, at this point he's still communicating with his people face to face. Um, and so he, he has a little talk with Cain. And he says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? This is a sort of fatherly chat. It reminds me of some Andy and Opie things going on here. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, I am just, and what I require of you is 
clear. And then he says, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, when I was a kid, I lived close to a uh, dam, um, not a huge dam, but I don't know, probably 20, 25 feet. Uh, and there was a rope swing above the dam. And uh, I remember asking my dad, it was probably, you know, some weather like this, July. Uh, I remember uh, telling my dad, hey, I'm going to go with some friends down to that rope swing. And my dad, who's normally much more permissive than my mother, um, uh, just said no, which rarely happened. And it sort of caught me off guard. He said, you're not going to do that. And I said, well, it's, you know, going with my friends. I think it would be fine. And he said, no, it's dangerous, and, and you're not going to go. So my dad uh, knew something about that rope swing, and he even knew someone who had died there. So he was trying to protect me. And God is here trying to protect Cain. Cain has no idea, really, what's building up inside of him and what is ready to burst. But God does, because God knows sin intimately. And he says, Cain, sin is on the other side of the door. It's inches away. It's crouching like a wild animal, and it would have you. It would have you. What does he mean by that? It would, it would eat you alive. Cain worked in the fields. He probably knew uh, what wild animals were like. But the difference is this. Animals want food, and sin wants you. Right? It's personal like that. And that's why uh, John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Because it's ravenous. That's the nature of sin. So God tries to counsel him. He tries to persuade him. He tries to warn him. He sets out life and death for Cain. He sets out blessings and curses. And so I said Andy and Opie, but uh, there's really a lot of shades of, of the father uh, standing outside the party and reasoning with the elder brother in Luke 17 in the parable of the prodigal son. And so it's interesting too. God wants him to rule over it. He wants him uh, to rule better than his father Adam did who fell. But Cain fails the test. He follows in his father's footsteps in sin. He spoke to Abel, his brother. I think the implication here is that he sort of wooed him, uh, invites him into the field. And there, verse 8, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Murder. First degree murder, right? There was planning here. He invited him into the field. With what he killed him, I don't know. I'm sure Cain had the tools of a farmer. But however he did this, it must have been very intimate, right? Close quarters and, and brutal. What did he do with the body? I don't know. No one had ever died before. Think about that. So who was Cain angry with? I would argue that he was really only secondarily mad at Abel. That who he was really mad at was God. In other words, he was just using Abel to take out his frustration on God. And he did it in the field where the unregarded sacrifice originated. Almost in a sort of twisted way as if Abel was another sacrifice. 
So this is really bad, right? I mean, this is heinous sin. All sin earns the wrath of God, but some sin is worse than other sin. Uh, it's more heinous. So if you kill a family member, you kill someone after God directly warned you not to. These are sort of multiplying factors here. So of course, Cain refuses to own it when God uh, confronts him. Verse 9, where is Abel your brother? Incidentally, brother is used seven times in this passage of Abel, and it is never once used of Cain, who destroyed his brother and destroyed his brotherhood. And Cain replies, I do not know, and famously he says, am I my brother's keeper? So this wicked, this insolent, smart aleck response. And by now we can really only conclude that Cain opened the door, right? That he let the the wild beast in, or rather that he let what was already in him out. Verse 10, the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, the trial now has begun. Matthew Henry uh, breaks the scene down in this way. The arraignment. Where is Abel your brother? The plea. Am I my brother's keeper? He's saying, not guilty. Uh, the evidence and conviction, God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And finally, the sentencing, God curses him. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. My punishment is greater than I can bear, whines Cain. He understands what's happening now. He's being driven out of, not just from a place, but from a loving uh, presence of God. So a similar thing that happened to his father Adam and his mother Eve, but now even uh, more so. Uh, and he says, if I'm a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, then whoever finds me is going to kill me. And God, ever gracious, says... Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on them sevenfold. In other words, that person will die for the death of Cain. And the Lord put a mark on Cain uh, to assure his safety. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what are we supposed to do with this story? Um, I, I think we can do a few things with it. Um, See, everyone, um, and, and maybe uh, especially um, skeptics, uh, non-Christians, uh, knows about uh, the sin of Adam and Eve, or at least in our culture, almost everyone knows uh, the deal, right? They ate the apple. It doesn't tell us it's apple. It tells us it's, it's fruit, and you may even hear it mocked, right? Like, ooh, they ate an apple. Like, why is that? Why is that so bad? One cheeky computer company, by the way, um, has a logo that is a bite taken out of an apple. So sin in our culture is really probably more associated with desserts that you shouldn't eat, right? That double chocolate cake is positively sinful. Uh, then the, the brutality that, that we see here. But think about this. When sin entered the world... Death came through sin, and it did not even take one generation for us to find a murderer. And that should tell us something about our lineage. 
about our genealogy. And this really struck home to me a few months ago. Uh, I was doing one of those Ancestry.com free trials, uh, where I work furiously for about a week and then uh, cancel it right before they're going to charge me, just to sort of find out more about my family. And so my mother's name is Clark, and uh, I was able to trace uh, her, or trace my ancestors all the way back to uh, Captain William Clark of the Revolutionary War, my sixth great-grandfather. And so he was born in York, Pennsylvania, and during the war had sort of a running um, personal battle with a loyalist named David Fanning, uh, who is popular enough to have a Wikipedia page, so, uh, yeah, although my ancestor does not. Uh, Captain William Clark uh, was also known for pursuing and bringing to justice two loyalists uh, who had killed a farmer there in Randolph, North Carolina, which is, is where he lived and where this was taking place. And he was a dedicated Quaker churchman. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, man, this is looking pretty good for me. I mean, we've got uh, a no- what a noble person to have in your family tree, right? And I felt like perhaps I could hold my head a little bit higher uh, than I normally do. Uh, but unfortunately, I kept reading. So uh, here's what I found. It was something odd in sort of the records about William Clark, and it's that he did not apply for a pension from his Revolutionary War service, um, which seems like throwing away free money, right? And so his children certainly thought so, and they, uh, after he passed, applied for his pension. And uh, as part of sort of proving their case, they had to interview uh, a bunch of people and sort of prove to the board his service. And one of the men they interviewed was 87-year-old Alexander Gray, who, like all the others I read, uh, spent some time talking about how great William Clark was, how he fought at a number of the key battles in the Revolutionary War. And then at the very end of this uh, seven or eight page document, I read this. These are the words of uh, this man, Alexander Gray. Captain William Clark and his company were in the Battle of Utah Springs, where he, meaning Captain Clark, said he killed a British officer which he regretted during life and seldom could speak of without shedding tears. He said him and the officer he killed were each engaged in dressing the lines of their respective companies preparatory to entering into the battle. When he, meaning Captain Clark, took a gun out of the hands of one of his men, shot at the British officer and saw him fall, which the said Captain Clark considered a murderous act, as neither of their companies were then engaged in the battle. In subsequent uh, subsequent life, Captain William Clark became a member of the Quaker Society. And when urged by his children and others to apply for a pension, he usually replied that he would not receive pay for acts which his conscience condemned. In witness of all which I do hereunto, set my hand, this second day of October 1855, Alexander Gray. So I thought I had a hero for an ancestor. I actually have a murderer. I thought I had a churchman for an, an ancestor. 
I actually have a, a broken man who wept over the blood his own hands had shed and who seemingly devoted his life to the church to assuage his own guilt. That's my genealogy, but it's really all of our genealogies because we all have uh, this problem that we descend from wickedness. Because since the day that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, sin has been crouching at our door. And we have opened it. And our ancestors opened it. And our children will open it. I know that you probably haven't murdered anyone uh, directly. I hope not. Um, I have not. But I also don't spend a whole lot of time thinking of how to preserve and promote the life of others. Making a just defense against violence. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, I've spent very little time uh, in thoughts of love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. I'm rarely found forbearing, ready to be reconciled, patiently bearing and forgiving injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting the distressed, in protecting and defending the innocent. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, requires that and so much more. So we all stand as condemned as Cain, right? Uh, we should all be wandering around east of Eden for the blood that we've shed, the blood that we have uh, failed to keep from being shed. So we're condemned. But it's not the last word. God did not leave his children without hope. He didn't even leave Cain without hope. He put a mark on him to protect him. And he sent him away, but he continued to be with him. He even gave Cain a sort of measure of success later on in his life. And God blessed him with his own family. And further on in the Old Testament, God continues to use other killers, in fact, like uh, Moses and David. Why is that? It's because the legacy of Abel did not, could not die in a field somewhere. It continued. Or, as Hebrews 12, 24 puts it, the blood of Christ has better things to tell than the blood of Abel. So when Jesus called him righteous Abel, when he spoke of his ancestor that way he was resonating with him in a way that no one really could have understood until Jesus himself was murdered until his own blood was shed so you won't find Abel in the long genealogy in Luke uh, but you will find Seth after the murder after Cain is banished the rest of Genesis 4 talks about Cain's descendants who it's no surprise follow in his footsteps uh, until we meet uh, Lamech, who is another murderer like Cain, a man who bragged about killing a young man for striking him and said, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So Lamech is sort of the culmination, the epitome of this line of Cain, the corrupt line. But right after that, we skip back to Adam and Eve. Like, what, what happened to these bereaved parents what says and Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth for she said God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him to Seth also 
a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is what we might call a seed theology. Back in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing the curse, the sentence on Satan and on Adam and Eve, he said the offspring, the seed of the woman, would sort of battle the seed of Satan. And though the seed of Satan would do harm, you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, the seed of the woman would win, would bruise Satan's head. In other words, would strike the decisive blow. The death of Abel through Cain then was really Satan's first attack on the seed of the woman, at least since the fall. But uh, redemption could not die in that field. Seth was born. And many years later, Jesus, who would also die, but his blood was different, right? Because he was innocent. The only one who's ever been born innocent. And therefore it had a power, and it still has a power, to cleanse us from our own sins. So that now, by faith, by that same faith, in fact, that Abel had, if you repent of your own uh, murderous and unloving in unjust ways, if you think that's overstatement, I'll put it this way, from your daily breaking of the sixth commandment and all that it requires, still, by faith, you can never truly die. No matter what uh, end you have in this life. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commanded, uh, commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting the gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So to this day, God requires a sacrifice of you. But what is the sacrifice? It's just yourself. It's just giving yourself over to him, repenting, putting your faith in Jesus, who is the ultimate, the perfect sacrifice who fulfilled all of the law. So it's yourself. It's your own body, your own mind, your own soul. Cain would not give that up, right? He wouldn't give himself to God. And when God pressed him on it, he, he lashed out in anger. Because our vertical problems with God always play themselves out horizontally with other, other people. And moreover, they play themselves out down line from us. And this is a sort of secondary application here, uh, that all of us are both a part of a legacy and we leave a legacy. In other words, what we do echoes in our children and down through their children and on and on, really until this world ends. And that is a terrifying thought for most of us. And it should drive us to Christ. The more pointed application here is really uh, just this. Be righteous. Be like Abel. And Abel's righteousness was not really tied up in his sacrifice. Although he did give the right sacrifice. It wasn't really tied up in what he did. It was tied up in who he was. It was tied up in his love for God. And that's what God requires of us. So even though sin is crouching at your door, even though it would have you, you can rule over it by faith in Jesus and faith in His blood shed for your sins. In other words, you are not stuck with your legacy. 
uh, saw this play itself out in um, living color in, in uh, the life of a, a friend of mine, a dear friend from seminary who's an uh, army ranger, and someday he's going to be a chaplain. Um, but recently, his father passed away from cancer, and uh, God converted him very dramatically on his deathbed. So you can think about in one moment, uh, this man changed his life. He changed his legacy. He changed his eternity by putting his faith in Jesus. He repented and believed. So it's all by faith. So through faith, you too can be a part of that legacy of redemption. From Abel to Seth to Enosh to Abraham to David to Jesus And you can leave your own legacy of life and not death. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you for um, all the ways that it uh, convicts us and uh, simultaneously puts us on trial uh, and uh, exonerates us, saves us, not because we are good, but because of uh, what Jesus has done in fulfilling the law and dying in our place, and uh, we pray that you would haste the day that we would be with him, uh, that you would uh, be with us, that we might repent of our sins and be forgiven and turn to you, and that we would leave a legacy of redemption. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.